Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth that makes it feel special makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. John Bolton is the new national security advisor, and the census is bizarrely in the headlines. We discuss the week's news and share some of our keynote address from Ripon College. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode. Thank you all for your support on Patreon and for signing up for our email. For those of you who haven't yet, you can go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and sign up for our weekly email where we share the weekly reads. I share the books that I've read this week, and we also share listener feedback, which is always fantastic. So pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and sign up for our weekly email. And if you go over to Patreon.com, we're covering some of the developments in the Mueller investigation, as well as our bonus footage of Women's History Month minutes. I will tell you that I have shared a little bit about the filings from the Alex Vanderswan sentencing. I've covered what Alex's legal team has filed, and next we'll be covering what the Mueller team filed, which has been in the news quite a bit today. So you can go get my crazy deep dive into that investigation at patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Also, just as vital to the future of our country, I am also sharing my kitchen renovation on Patreon. Uh, We are officially without a kitchen, hole in the floor, 
no appliances situation. So if you want to follow along as the flooring comes in tomorrow, along with the cabinets, it's going to be really exciting. Go be on Patreon. Patreon, our personality test <laughs> all, <laughs> all times. Okay, we want to talk today about some of the White House personnel change because it's a revolving door there on Pennsylvania Avenue. And we didn't get to talk about John Bolton. We were in Wisconsin when the news broke via Twitter, of course, that the president has dismissed H.R. McMaster and hired John Bolton. And when we met with the president of Ripon College, he asked us what we think about politics today. And I said, well, today, right now, I'm worried about John Bolton as the national security advisor. I feel like sometimes really major things happen and we sort of just put off talking about them. This is one of them when it's just I don't know what else to say except for I'm scared. This dude is scary. He should not be the national security advisor Why are we rolling through national security advisors so fast? That should also be a cause for concern. And yeah, everybody panic. I guess that's my nuanced take because he doesn't even need to be confirmed. (laughs) I'm frustrated by people like Marco Rubio saying that there is a media freak out that is undeserved about John Bolton. It is true that the media has made this a large story because it is a large story. It is also true that on a bipartisan basis, the Senate refused to confirm John Bolton twice during the Bush years as the U.N. ambassador. President Bush had to appoint him as a recess appointment. He served in that post a very short amount of time. He is widely known as someone who cannot hear differing opinions. He is on Fox News as an ideologue talking about foreign policy, and the national security advisor position is not a position for an ideologue. That position is about giving the president the most objective take possible on what our intelligence tells us. It, it is concerning, and it really bothers me when Republicans are trying to defend this, even though if you go back to the Bush years, Republicans said, nope. This guy isn't a fit for foreign policy, diplomacy, and matters that require objectivity. I mean, I just want to say, too, that the president himself is not without concerns about John Bolton. Mainly, he doesn't like his mustache. I wish I was making this up. I understand that the president is scraping the bottom of an increasingly small barrel of people in the intelligence world who will come work for the White House. Well, and can that I just, can, I'm sorry, can I interrupt? Maybe it wouldn't be such a shallow barrel if he ins- didn't insist on getting them from cable news. Can I just say that? I'm sorry. And firing people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The way that all of the human resources matters in the White House are handled devastates me. This is just not how you lead good teams. It's at the most base level. It's so disrespectful to the people who do this work. It's so disrespectful. And how are we going to have qualified people who want to walk into this? The news broke today via Twitter that the VA secretary is being replaced. And we're moving along at a clip here of cabinet officials in and out the door at a pretty disturbing pace. So I just want to say, President Trump, bring in somebody who knows how to care about people and treat them well so that we can have a functional cabinet and a functioning intelligence community and a functioning foreign policy. It seems like not too much to ask. (sighs) Sorry, that's all I've got to add. 
The census is in the news right now. I have a feeling it's going to elicit a similar sound from you, Sarah, because for the first time in many years, the White House has decided to add a question about citizenship to the census. All I really have to say about this is then we're just not going to have an accurate census, right? People are just going to hide from the counters and not count themselves voluntarily, and we're just not going to have an accurate census. If we want to know how many people are actually living in the country, then probably under an administration that is known for a rather hard line about immigration, we should not be asking this question. But if we don't care and we're just counting for the sake of counting and to score political points and to make antiquated, frequently disproven by data arguments about voter fraud, then, you know, have at it. I feel very passionately about the census, both as a just American and also as a person that does a lot of ancestry research. It is so important. It is so fascinating. And also, like, I just feel like on a philosophical level, we cannot understand ourselves and the country we live in without an accurate, adequate count of who lives here. Like, it's just to me so sad that this one thing, this one thing, and, you know, I'm not a historian, but I am willing to bet that the census has been the source of partisan battles before. But, like I said, how are we going to assess ourselves and really understand who we are if we're not willing to do the most basic thing without partisan bickering and using it as a football, like just counting who's here. And like, here's the other thing. I'm not a statistician, but something tells me that census takers and really good social scientists can use these numbers to still estimate how many people are here without documents. So I don't know. It's not like you won't get that information anyway. Like, it's not this is the only way to get it. You're not going to get it anyway. People are just going to hide. It's just an intimidation. I don't even think it's about really understanding how many people are here illegally. I think it's just about punishing largely democratic places that have a large population of undocumented workers. It's just, it's so transparent and ugly. It grosses me out. Yeah, it is. I mean, I just have to save my outrage for, the, you know, it's a, like, I think this is terrible. I think it is so simple to get this right. And they're just choosing to make it political for no reason. It doesn't rise to John Bolton level for me. So that's where I am this week, you know, but it, it's sad. It is sad. Well, and it's like there, there's been so much reporting that the census is understaffed. This huge, huge, important once a decade count is coming up and they're not prepared. And this is what you're spending your time and energy on. Really? Really? Defending lawsuits, which you knew were going to come? It makes me so angry. Well, that's the thing. This is going to be a massive waste of resources. It's probably going to delay the census. Maybe that's part of why they're doing it. Hey, let's invite some lawsuits. We'll delay this thing that we're not prepared for. I don't know. If you're listening to this conversation and thinking, where's the Republican? Like, I understand. No one is saying that we shouldn't address illegal immigration in some meaningful way. But that is a function of Congress. And doing it in all of these backhanded half-baked ways that rate that waste resources and that fail to perform the most basic functions of government there's nothing republican about that it's just mean and small 
But we are going to compliment some Republicans because I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that the Utah State House and State Senate are um, Republican controlled. And they just passed an amazing, quote unquote, free range parent piece of legislation, the first in the country. So this awesome law states that basically from now on, a child whose basic needs are met and who is of sufficient age and maturity to avoid harm or unreasonable risk of harm is free to engage in independent activities. AKA somebody who sends their kid walking to the park or on the subway because they trust their independence isn't going to get arrested. And I'm here for this law. Excellent work, Utah. I agree. I have been following with interest a lot of email from listeners who are across the pond talking to us about European styles of parenting. I think I've shared before that one of Jane's babysitters has a mother who was a German citizen and they spend a lot of time in Germany still. She's the most responsible teenager I've ever been around in my life. She is amazing in every way. And I credit most of it to her mom giving her so much more independence and not hovering the way most of us in America hover over our children. I think that this is a very reasonable law. I'm sad that it has to be a law that we've kind of gotten to the point where we don't expect people to make their own decisions about whether their kids can walk to the park or not. But thank you, Utah, for giving people license to lighten up a little bit. Yeah, I think it's so excellent. I think that we have massively overcorrected in this area. And, you know, Britain has is starting to do this stuff where they're like, they have basically dangerous playgrounds. I'm trying to convince our parks department that we need one of these where they have like hammers and nails and things that you don't think children normally play with. But you you have to allow them to test their independence, to work it out. Griffin um, takes violin approximately two blocks up from his elementary school. And I usually have an adult walk with him because there's a very busy street crossing. Um, but because of I was out of town, there was some miscommunication. No one showed up and he walked down there himself. So stinking proud. So proud. I know it's scary, but they need to do it. And, you know, these parents who are making like carefully weighed decisions, it's still a little scary to then be harassed or arrested. God forbid. So ridiculous. So I think this is great work, Utah. I'm all about the free range parenting. If you look at the entire state of our nation, and especially our political discourse, a big thing that you see is an absence of resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think this kind of parenting helps build resilience in kids. So again, hooray. Good job, Utah. So next up, we are going to share part of our keynote address at Ripon College, and we are so excited to hear what y'all think. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. We are about to share a little bit of our conversation from Ripon College with you. I want to tell you a little bit about our time there. Ripon is in Wisconsin. Ripon, Wisconsin is the home of the Republican Party. We actually went to the little white schoolhouse where the Republican Party was born. It was a very interesting experience and very charming and just delightful in a lot of ways. We spent the entire day at Ripon. We did two communications classes with Professor Steve Martin, who is a listener of Pantsy Politics. That was a lot of fun. We met with the president. We did a workshop with students to talk about having constructive political dialogue, and we applied those principles to the Me Too movement, which brought out a lot of new insights. I think even for both of us, as much as we've talked about Me Too, we came to some new understandings during that time. And then what you're about to hear is the keynote. This was a Women's History Month keynote. College students as well as faculty and members of the community were invited. So there were a little over 100 people in the room, and it was a really wonderful and kind of wide-ranging 
engaging discussion of bringing nuance to conflict. So we hope that you enjoy it. So the podcast build as no shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. It's all about this idea of nuance and sort of bridging the divide. And so with that in mind, I'm really excited to introduce you to Sarah and Beth. some of what we could do is reflect on what we've learned in this process as a reflection of where we see dialogue in America generally. I think when it started, when I think back, when I try to go back to that time, when we were just sitting, she was in her closet, I was in my bedroom, like trying to lock my kids out. And when I think I really, we prioritized our relationship. It really feels like still to this day, now, am I more aware of how many people are listening? Absolutely. But I am still fundamentally talking to her. That's who I'm talking to. That's what I'm prioritizing. And while I understand that some things I say, like we had an episode last week about othering people and how Donald Trump is deserving of basic human dignity. Like I knew I was going to get emails about that, but really I wanted to hear what Beth thought. That was what was most important to me. And something about prioritizing this I think is what people react to. I always describe our listeners at the, especially in the beginning, as like thirsty wonders in the desert. It was like people were like, "Where have you been? You're nice to each other. Wow, how do you do that?" And I'm like, um, "I just, I'm just, I'm just nice to this person I've known my whole life." Like there was almost like this sort of shock and confusion that this was possible. That this, there was a different way of engaging with politics. That everything did not have to look like a CNN panel, that you didn't have to just parrot talking points, that you could say, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't, I don't know. I think that this politician I really love or this party that's such a huge part of my identity is getting it wrong. I will talk about why I think they're getting it wrong. Like it was, it was free. It was truly free. And it was free for us to realize like we can do this however we want because a podcast, what is a podcast? They can do whatever we want it to be. We're just making it and seeing what's happening. And so we said right and left to be transparent about where we're coming from, mostly with each other. We knew each other for a long time, but we weren't close. I don't know how Sarah felt about most issues. In fact, I still am surprised by things that she says when we start talking. And I hope that she is by me too. I mean, that's to me, that's what makes it an interesting relationship. The reason I am, Sarah's one of my best friends in the world today, and she that was not true when we started the podcast. And I love the idea that two people who are starting out by saying, we are in different corners, can through discussing our differences, have this very close relationship and grow together instead of apart from each other. And that is why I just don't buy what we're being sold in America right now, which is there are two Americas. We're so polarized. It's hopeless, right? We don't have anything in common anymore. We have like all the things in common. We're just not emphasizing those things because the second we say right and left, we decide that must mean a debate format. It must mean that you're talking to win. It must be that you're either a Sarah person or a Beth person. Um, I tell people a lot. My email every day is full of messages that sound like this. Hi, Beth. Um, I started listening to the podcast thinking that I was not going to like you. Um, I'm a dynamo liberal. And while I agree with Sarah on everything, I really do like agree with you a lot. And I'm surprised at how interested I am in hearing from you because I don't usually like hearing things I don't agree with. <laughs> 
if they weren't yelling at you from the television. <laughs> but that's what we've decided it means on TV right now, right? It's like the, the brand of conservatives and media is anger. And so when I don't sound angry, people are like, are you a Republican? <laughs> I don't think that you are. And when Sarah doesn't sound outraged constantly in a state of panic about the, about our country's future, people are like, oh, no, they are so different. <laughs> and, and when we disagree, sometimes we'll get emails saying, I just wish that you would disagree more. And I'm like, I'm really saying we do. But it doesn't sound like a fight because it's not a fight. And at the end of the podcast, we're not trying to decide who got the best of that argument. That is not the purpose. The purpose instead is to say, what did I learn today? And do I really feel about this the way that I felt when we started? And that doesn't mean an abandonment of principle, which is another thing we hear a lot. I don't want you to ask me to give up my principles. I'm not. Keep your principles. I like them. I like mine too. Um, it is, though, to say, I prioritize this relationship with this person more than feeling a sense of intellectual or moral superiority. I think what I've really learned from doing the podcast and engaging in this type of discourse, not only with Beth, but with our listeners, is I would like to acknowledge and think that I was a you know, fully evolved human being, um, aware of my own faults and limitations when I started this podcast. But I really think if you backed me into a corner in 2015, I would have said, no, I'm really right about these things. I'm right most of the time. And as I was telling in the communications class, if you would just read this book and or long read I'm recommending to you, you would see how right I am. I really like information. Like, no, see, if you read this book, you'll get it. You'll understand why I'm right. I think that I didn't think I was like that, but at the end of the day, I believe that there was one perspective that was best for America. I did. I think if you cornered me, I really would have admitted to that. And through the years of doing the podcast, working in my community, what I've learned is, and where I've shifted, is that I see value in a perspective I disagree with being present all the time. It doesn't mean I'm going to come around to that perspective. It doesn't mean that I am fundamentally changing my values or even my sort of policy recommendations. But that just how important it is to have someone in the room that says, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what if you're wrong? What if you forgot this? What if you didn't think about this? That that is so powerful and so important. Uh, one of my favorite analogies that Beth uses is she says that I, and when we talk about the role of government, that I'm the gas and she's the brakes, that I'm like, oh, but we all have all these, the federal government is huge and powerful. We have all these tools. Let's use all of them at once. And she's like, hold on, pump the brakes a little bit. Like, maybe that's not the best approach. And I see in other areas of my life, like personal and other, just other areas of our world, when you don't have both those perspectives, when you don't have somebody to go, oh, hold on, wait a minute. Like, I, we were talking about social media this morning. I think social media in the technology industry is where you see what happens when you have someone on the gas. Let's just do it. We can do it. We have it available. Let's do it. Gas, 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 let's go. And then we go, oh, wait, hold on, Uber. What if you actually don't reduce traffic? Hold on, Airbnb. What happens if everybody's Airbnb? Like, what if, what if we pump the brakes just a little bit? And the value of that give and take, because we're not all right all the time. And we're not all, like, one perspective is not going to fix everything in America. That is that give and take, that paradox, that dance, that, that is so valuable and that is so important.
And I think that what we've realized is that the more we talk, the easier it gets to be complicated people who don't line up with parties and don't line up with caricatures. We were having a discussion about Women's History Month and feminism earlier and uh, discussing how sometimes when you're having a conversation about like women in leadership, what the men in the room hear is women are superior and if you would just give it to us, we would fix it. You messed it up and now we'll fix it. Um, and I understand why men hear it that way. And I also have been in a room where we were talking about women in leadership and people in the room said, it's really offensive to talk about feminine characteristics of leadership because gender is a spectrum and this is an exclusive conversation and it's trafficking in gender stereotypes that are harmful and hurtful to everyone. And these are things that people in their 20s all across the United States could reasonably disagree on. People at all ages could reasonably disagree on these things. That does mean we're having some pretty different conversations in America, but what we found is that if we just have them, it gets easier. Every single time it gets easier. And it gets easier um, to say, I don't sound like a Republican a lot. When we started The Nuanced Life, the second podcast that Lauren mentioned where we don't talk about politics, if you only listen to The Nuanced Life, you would 100% believe that I'm a liberal in this relationship. It's awesome. I have some very strong opinions about what people should wear in church. That was the one episode where everybody was like, are you sure you're the liberal? And I'm like, yes, but people should wear collars and not wear jeans to church. I feel very strongly about this. There needs to be rules and guidelines. And Ben's like, listen, we don't need rules and guidelines. You do you. You do you. And I'm like, that's outrageous. No. Um, and so people are like, all right, wait, what? And I think that, you know, if I put down on paper a lot of characteristics about myself, like Beth has some wanderlust, I'm wholly dedicated to my hometown. I think everyone should live in Paducah, Kentucky. That it is the, actually, no, I don't want everyone to <laughs> But I do think it is the most wonderful place. I will never move. Where Beth's like, let's move every six months. I'm like, no, no, I don't want to do that. Um, so I think that that's, you know, when we, when we practice that, when we just realize like we can disagree or you can stumble, that's what I think is really important that we've learned from the podcast, that you can just stumble and mess it up and offend someone and that people, even in, conver in, even in conversations about politics, are more capable of giving grace than you, than you would imagine. And I, I think that I hear so often from people like you hear fear and you hear it's so hard to talk about these things. What if I don't know what I'm talking about? What if I say the wrong things, which we absolutely have. We've used, we've had people, you know, email and say, you really shouldn't use the term homosexual. That's really offensive. Well, the last thing I would ever want to be is offensive, particularly to that identity. And so that was like, that's hard to hear. It's hard to hear people say, you said that wrong. You missed that up. You hurt my feelings. You disregarded my perspective. That's a really hard thing to hear. And yet I wake up the next day and I talk again. And Beth and I talk, and that listener comes back, or they don't, and the world and, and life continues, and the world goes on, and we can, you know, offend each other or mess up or screw up, and as long as we don't doubt each other's motives, as long as we don't assault each other's sort of integrity, I think that's where we that's where we've lost our way. We don't say that it's okay that I disagree with you. It's that if you disagree with me, you are an enemy. You're an enemy of America. You don't care about America. One of the stories I tell on the podcast is when I was in college, I went to Washington, D.C. for a conference, and I was walking with my friends, 
Washington, D.C. is just a safe place to talk about politics. Everybody likes to talk about politics. It's sort of like when I knocked on doors for my campaign. It's like, ooh, somebody that has to talk politics with me, yay. Because people understand it's important, I think. But it's such a fearful space now because everyone's identity is wrapped up into it. So I'm walking down the streets of D.C. We're having this conversation. This was in this sort of right after 9-11. And this girl sees our bag, my friend's C-SPAN bag, and comes up and engages us, and we're talking. And we were talking about post-9-11, more on terror, and I was like, well, I'm just not sure how I feel about this. And this girl who I met five minutes before looked at me and said, that's because you hate America. You don't even know my last name, sweetheart. Like, how do you know? But that's, that's the fear, right? It's immediately, you're terrible, you're an enemy, you don't care. This assault on who you are as a person. Whereas when we trust, when we prioritize the relationship, and when our listeners do as well, and we prioritize grace, which is a word you don't hear a lot in politics, and just moving forward in the conversation as opposed to shutting things down and trying to listen and try to keep moving forward, it just it changes the whole tenor of the conversation. Another thing I would say about my life right now that I have regret about is that my husband and I bought a brand new house and a brand new subdivision in a suburb of Cincinnati. When we moved from Lexington, where we went to college, to Cincinnati, where I was going to go work for the firm. And now I look at my subdivision, which is about as homogenous as, as a place can possibly be. We're among people who are plus or minus five years of our age. We are all Christian for the most part. We are all probably within $20,000 plus or minus of annual household income. It is so homogenous. It's lovely. I trust everybody. I love my neighbors. My kids go outside and play. I know if I'm on vacation, somebody's going to get my mail, and we're going to do the same thing for them. There are wonderful, wonderful things about it. But I also recognize that I have cut myself off from a broader community through that decision, and I did it for reasons that all sounded really good. I want a good school system. I don't, I'm not good at fixing things, so I want a brand new house. There were lots of reasons that made perfect sense, but when I look back, I think this was the wrong decision. I wish I had made a different one. That's super hard to admit. Nobody likes to say things like that. And I really think that our attitudes and our defensiveness about all of our personal choices, we talk about this with birth all the time. The two of us bonded because we had unmedicated births. You want to set a group of women off? You go talk to them about unmedicated births. Okay? <laughs> but we all feel really defensive about those personal choices that we make, and we automatically assume. So, so I would never say to my neighbors, we are all wrong to live here. But that's what people would hear if I said, I should have made a different choice. And that is the exact stuff that we're bringing to politics and why I think it's so important to have the kind of conversations that we have where we say, like, I don't know everything. I mean, it's like every if I say I am liberal, people hear you are a bad person because you are conservative. I think you're bad for America because you're conservative. That is the implication. And I feel like you hate the poor. You hate the poor. You want people to die from sickness. Yeah. Yeah. There's all this baggage we bring, and it's all that we we talk, but we hear things, and then we don't listen to what's being said back to us. And there's just no space for, I'm just talking. My experience, as different from your experience, does not invalidate you. It just doesn't. There's space. This is a big, messy country. 
and there is a space for lots of lots different experiences. Montana's pretty much empty. There's space for lots of experiences over there. So like we, we don't have to do this to one another. We don't have to say one experience is valid, one experience is right. We bring moral judgment to everything. We bring moral judgment to like what kind of singer you like, what kind of coffee cup you listen like everything is a moral judgment as opposed to it just is. It just is what it is. You feel differently about this policy position. That's what it is. Like, can we just hear each other out? Eventually, we might have to pick a side. Eventually, we're going to have to decide the path forward. Eventually, we're going to have to decide the law and votes will have to be made. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes that has to happen. But that doesn't, at the, because our politics has become such a level of identity and conversation, it, the stakes are so high about everything. We can't get past that maybe feeling differently about the Starbucks holiday cup is like totally fine. And even with bigger picture topics, you know, I think about trade a lot. So I am like a Republican in the vein of like Paul Ryan in 2005. Okay, so that's kind of the closest I can talk to anyone about my political identity right now because the Republican Party has changed so much over the past few years. But Steve Bannon would call me a globalist because I believe in free trade. I believe trade agreements are important to our national security. I believe that forging alliances through economic policy helps the world become more peaceful over time. Those are just my perspectives. However, I totally get where people are coming from who are opposed to NAFTA, who oppose the TPP. I get it. And I also get the perspective of we should make our stuff here in America and we should buy stuff made here in America. And I'm really okay with some of the trade-offs of doing that. I don't need my socks to cost 29 cents. Like if we decide we're going to shut it down and do it all here in America, I'll pay $7 for socks. I'm fine with that. I want to be very honest about that conversation. I don't want us to pretend that we can have it all ways. And I think that we do that in that conversation. I want to be clear. What are we talking about? But I'm willing to say, okay, maybe my worldview on this doesn't work. I Jeff Bezos talks at Amazon about how in healthy businesses you disagree and commit. You bring all these perspectives into the room and you say, let's hash it out. Bring me your best. And then we're going to have to pick a direction on some of this. And when we leave, you can still disagree, but commit to trying to make this work. And that's how I feel about so many issues in America. And there are some issues where that's just not possible. Uh, we've talked a lot while we've been here today about an interview we recently did with someone who believes that all abortion should be illegal, which is a position that neither of us hold. That's why we had her on the show. Neither of us represent that perspective. We wanted to talk to somebody who did. Our audience was very uncomfortable about this. Okay, very, very uncomfortable. And I think the reason everybody was uncomfortable is because there isn't a resolution. So I just said for you, here was how I would resolve the trade issue. If we decide as a country to do something I disagree with, I will disagree and commit. I will buy the $7 socks. I, I will hope for the best for America that this works, and I will do my best to make that so. That's just not, that doesn't happen when you're talking about, am I going to criminalize abortion or not? That is an issue where we're just going to have to sit here in the dissonance of strongly disagreeing about something that is very fundamental to our identities and our families and our values. Sometimes we have to do that. That's okay. And we can still love each other through that, and we can still value our citizenship. I want to live in the country with a person who disagrees very strongly with me about that issue, and that's what I elevate in the conversation. I think something also missing from 
America that we try to at least bring a little bit forward in our conversations is any sort of reconciliation. Any sort of, you know what? We messed that up and I'm really sorry. Sometimes, you know, and I, I look back in the moments I feel it. And now as I look back over all the times Beth has said, my party got that wrong. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry I voted for this person because they I put them in office and what they did was hurtful and wrong. And to hear someone say that, to hear another, a person from the other side in America say, you know what, I got that wrong and I'm really sorry, is so powerful. I think there's a lot of space for the Democratic Party to do that, particularly about rank issues of race. We got that wrong. We're really sorry. We got that wrong on women's rights. We got that wrong on civil rights. We got that wrong on even trade issues. You know, we thought this was going to be great for everybody. It was not great for your population. We're really sorry about that. We got that wrong. We don't do that. I was listening to Krista Tippett on being a great podcast, and she was talking about the Louisville mayor of Kentucky and how good he was as a politician when a community would say, we felt left behind. He would not make excuses. He would just let that be. You're right. I'm sorry. I hear you. I hear you. And it's hard as a politician myself to listen to a community. And I'm talking about like some majors, minor zoning stuff in Paducah, Kentucky. And every fiber in my being wants to make excuses, to make them feel better, to fix it, as opposed to just saying, you're right, we screwed that up. I'm sorry. Or that had consequences we didn't anticipate. And that would make a different decision today. And the truth is, the way to start getting these things right is doing it together. I get very excited about criminal justice reform. Um, I'm on the board of an organization in Ohio that is advocating for serious overhaul of our criminal justice laws and provides direct services to prisoners because I see that as an issue. It is not partisan at all. Both parties have trafficked in being tough on crime. Both parties have benefited from legislation that has resulted in us essentially warehousing our fellow human beings. And whether you characterize that as an issue of racial justice or personal liberty, or economic responsibility, fiscal responsibility, there is space for everybody to get together and say, we got this wrong. How can we fix it? Let's have a new conversation about how we can fix it. And that's what makes me really excited. We would like to hear what makes you really excited or any other questions that you have. As I said, we've been talking at some of you all day. Thank you to those of you who have <laughs> been with us all up. day. So nice. Thank you. Um, but we would love to talk with you about what's on your mind. There's a microphone right there, don't be a TV. Yeah, come on up. Um, so something that I've recently encountered, especially with the new gun control debate going on, is um, since we've been on this homework spring break, is people want to talk politics to me, and I don't know anything about gun control. Like, literally zero. Same thing with the zip Israeli conflict. I'm Jewish, I'm a proud Jew. No zero. Literally no nothing. And I don't, not that I don't want Thank to know. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I don't care to know because it's not something we're improving right now. But when I have these discussions, it's kind of thrust on me, and I don't know how to express my absence of knowledge in a constructive way. And I don't know if either of you have encountered that, where it's like, Someone just expects you to know all these things and you just have no idea. For that pepper you with statistics for perhaps long reads you should check out. Yeah. I've never um, <laughs> I think what, what we've learned to do and what I've started trying to do, and I think this is a good sort of practice if you feel like ah, I don't I don't know anything about this issue, is to say, Okay, I don't know a lot about this issue, but this is what I this is the kind of country I want to live in. Like this is what I'm not happy with right now. I don't I can't promise you I know how to answer it. I'm not a, you know, a social science or a political scientist. I don't have the answers. 
but I know like this, this isn't good enough. I'm unhappy with where we are now and I'd like to move in a different direction. And I don't think you need the answers to make that statement. I also think just asking a lot of questions is really good. What's important to you about that? You know, this is a new issue for me. Why do you think it's important? What, what do you care about? There was a Facebook post that went viral um, right before the school walkout where a mother posted about talking with her middle school student who wanted to walk out. And the mother said to the student, why do you want to do this? And the student said, to protest gun laws. And the mother said, what are the gun laws today? And the student said, I don't know, but I think they need to change. And she said, you're not protesting until you can tell me what you're actually protesting. And people were sharing that with either a yay or a boo, depending on their position on gun regulation. I'd like to talk about that as a parenting moment for a second. And say, to your point, isn't it a wonderful thing to care even when you don't have all the information? I think we need more voters who say, I don't know. I think we need to elect more politicians, less because we're buying them like a product off the shelf that will go robotically vote for what we want, and more because we think they're decent human beings who will read briefing books and who will listen to people at meetings and hold town halls and hear from them and over time come up with a position that makes sense based on all this information that they've taken in. So I applaud you for saying that you don't know and I would encourage you to do more of that and I think that you'll give people around you permission to acknowledge what they don't know either. Israel and Palestine is a perfect example of an issue where lots of us have strong opinions supported by zero facts. <laughs> it would be great to start kind of bringing that to light and developing some curiosity for some facts. Well, and I think that you, you know, you are not alone and you would probably be surprised by how many people, even when you look at the, like the voting breakdown, there's a strong party affiliation and then there's like, I don't know, 30% of Americans who don't have a strong affiliate with party. A lot of people voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. So I think that's that's not uncommon. I don't think it's uncommon for people to say, I don't feel super strongly about this. I don't know everything like I feel like I need to know. But there's, they should still be involved in the democratic process. And we still need people like that at the table having these conversations, not just both extremes battling it out at the fringes. The conversation that I have a lot about gun regulation is, so, so if I'm talking with someone, especially like a family member, I'll say, it doesn't make sense to me that you need to own like military grade weapons here. That doesn't feel like the Second Amendment to me. Can you, you know, I, that just doesn't make sense. And they'll say, well, you don't even know what an assault weapon is. And I'm like, you're right. Tell me. Tell me about that. Help me understand why you do need this weapon. Um, help me understand what you do with it and why you see it as protective and why the, the suggestion of background checks for you to buy bothers you. And then they see I'm not interested in winning this argument. I do want to learn, and I do. I genuinely want to learn. I'm actually like studying different types of weapons right now because I want to be more informed in this conversation. Uh, I think that's I think that's our way forward. I want to get a raffle, so I'm learning all kinds of weapons right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's how Kentucky works. That's a true story. <laughs> Anybody else? Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. <laughs> um, I want to ask you guys about the Me Too movement, and there's been so many comments about it, about women from the left and women from the right. Do you guys feel like it's been a polarizing movement, or do you feel like it's been something that's given a voice for women no matter their political The second one. Um, <laughs> we are here for the Me Too movement. We started having the Me Too Minute on Pantsy Politics because we were talking about it so much. Uh, I think that it's been a really empowering moment and what we, we talked about this in the workshop i think it represents the sort of best possible messy vulnerable human interaction because it hasn't had the sneak resolution 
because we all didn't just get to check it off the list and move forward. They were all still kind of like, I don't know, uh, what do you think? No, I feel strongly. No, I feel strong. Like, I think that that um, is such a great illustration of what we need more of. There was some reconciliation in the Me Too movement. There was a lot of, I'm sorry I messed this up, that I think was incredibly healing for a huge population of women. And there was a lot of, we don't have good systems for this. What do we want this to look like? Which I think is really, really positive and a conversation we need to have more often in America. And I also think well, another thing we talked about in the workshop that's been really positive of the that's come out of the Me Too movement is there's this conversation about false accusations, which I think is valid. And instead of saying there might be false accusations, that's it. Can't do it. Beth has had some really great moments on the podcast where she said, we're probably going to overcorrect. That's okay. We're going to overcorrect. That's what we do, right? We go and then we go, wait. We're like, oh, that's not quite right. Let's go back this way. And that's, let's just acknowledge that. That's just the paradox of the reality of this movement and this moment is that we're going to mess up. Doesn't mean everything was wrong that we did. Both things can be true. What's our tolerance for that, though? I think that's one of the most interesting conversations surrounding me, too. What's our tolerance for screw ups? What's our tolerance for mistakes? What's our tolerance for overcorrection? And anything. I mean, we have that. It's, it, it's an often a political debate or political conversation. It's sort of like the gotcha moment. Well, what about this? What about people who exploit the welfare system? What about them? They exist? Yeah, I'm willing to acknowledge their existence. Does that mean that we're not going to do it anymore? Like, what's our tolerance for it? I think that's one of the most interesting conversations we're going to be to movement as well. I don't know that this is directly responsive to your question, but I want to share it because I'll, I'll say for me, me too, has been less politically uncomfortable and more personally uncomfortable, but in that way that gets to what I was saying, that I think that our political system is a reflection of our personal problems. Um, I was very sober and I think you can hear it on the podcast as we were having like the daily public execution of powerful male figures in business and politics. I did not like it. I never had a moment when I was like, yes. This is I where this is where we're complimentary because I was like channeling my inner yeah. Madame Defarge. I was like, who are we knitting into the blanket today? Let's do this. Sarah was so excited about this piece that Lindy West wrote for the New York Times called This Is a Witch Hunt and I'm a Witch Hunt Coming for You. So and I was like, I don't like anything about this. I was like, I love this. I want this tattoo on my back. I didn't have any sense of that. I was really uncomfortable. And I think some of that is because I worked in human resources for a long time. Gretchen Carlson, we interviewed Gretchen Carlson, the former Fox News host, um, who really kicked this off and doesn't get enough credit for it, I think, um, by bringing complaints against Roger Ailes. And she talks in her book extensively about how HR is usually complicit in sexual harassment in the context of workplaces because HR represents the company. And I read that chapter of her book, and I was like, oh, I've done this. Inadvertently, unwittingly, I have tried to ride that line of being an advocate for a woman and an advocate for a company at the same time. And usually, that doesn't work, you know? And I think I've gotten it wrong probably more times than I've gotten it right. That sucks. That's just really uncomfortable. But that was a choice you just made to say that. Like, that is huge to me. Like, I could get a little teary because people don't want to do that. 
People don't want to say, I think I messed it up. She could have made a very deliberate choice on our podcast. Or not even, no, actually, it wouldn't have been a deliberate choice. It would have been the default psychological response when people feel threatened and when people feel assaulted in the choices they've made, when they felt like they were trying to do the right thing or what was required of them. She could have doubled down. She could have said, no, this is what's wrong. This is what HR people are doing the best they can. Instead, she was like, it feels really bad to acknowledge that I might have screwed this up. That was a very brave choice that she made and a very powerful one. I think for our audiences and for me and for anybody witnessing the conversation, that's not an easy thing to do, to say, I think I messed this up in my own life. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. That is also what I think is so healthy. I think we have to break this bone fully in order to allow it to heal. And so that's what I like about the Me Too movement. I think it is saying this is really hard and, and we have all played a role in it somewhere along the way. And some of us women are not victims, right? Some of us women have been on the side of enabling this. And, um, and that's miserable, but I think that builds our spiritual muscles. I think it makes us better human beings. Um, I think I'm a better thinker about my personal values from having gone through this exercise. And for me, that's what it's about. And I think Me Too was like such a moment for me to put all these lessons learned from engaging in fancy politics into practice. I had a very difficult conversation with two men in my life. I'm gonna get thinking. I cry on the podcast. It's cool. I do not. She never cries. When people cry. People like, did Beth cry? It's like always. I, I said for a while, my goal was to get her to cry on the podcast. She's like, couple times. But I, I had this very intense conversation with two men in my life, and I and I was able to apply all this. Right, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to prioritize our relationship. These two men know that I love them, and they know that they love me, and so I was able to exercise. But, and I needed to exercise that anger. I needed to say, like, you don't know what it's like for people to constantly tell you you're wrong about your own experience. It's frustrating. It's infuriating. It makes you feel like you're crazy. And to tell this to men not who I love and who loved me and who had to hear it, there was some reconciliation in that. There was, some, there was an empowerment in that. But they had to face that. They had to feel my wrath. They had to feel my, my inner Madame Defarge and be like, you don't know what this is like. For even men that love you to say, no, it, they really weren't being sexist. Don't worry, that's not what would happen. Like, it's infuriating. And to hear and to have that, and it was hard. And it's not like we had this great resolution at the end of it. It's not like we all like, well, we fixed the Me Too moment here at my dinner table. I left frustrated, they left frustrated, and then we did it again. And then we came back and we said, okay, we still love each other. We still care about this country. We still care about each other. Let's do this again. And that's the lesson. What Beth always says is what we learned is nuance is not a noun. It's a verb. It's showing up over and over again and saying, okay, last time I cried and I got really mad, but let's do it again. Let's do it again. We can do this. And I think that Me Too gives, a, gives space and voice to that almost more than any other conversation. And, and you can really strip away the parties, I think, with Me Too, which is more issues where we're stripping away the parties and having real conversations. Do you want to have one more question? Anybody? I'm wondering if you could each tell a story about a time when you were really glad to change your mind about something when you learned something that was so precious to you that you really sort of switched sides or at least took a very different take. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> so I'm a Democrat. That means that I like welfare. 
that's sort of like when I became a Democratic, I switched parties. I went from a 180 college. So I was like, okay, well, I didn't really sign a contract, but it felt like I did. And I felt like I was like, okay, well, I signed up that I like welfare. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to defend welfare. So that's what I did. And we did a primer on welfare in which we tried to sort of start from zero and really explain the history. And I did this primer and I was like, oh my goodness, I do not understand welfare. I was defending something I did not fundamentally understand at all. And I was also getting a lot of emails from listeners who were like, listeners who interacted daily with the system and who were telling me things that I just didn't really want to hear. I didn't want to hear. I didn't want to hear that. I, I, I knew that, yes, some people exploited the system. I did not understand the ways in which it really perpetuated a lack of agency and loss of human dignity and all these issues that you hear. But, like, as a Democrat, you're like, no, no, I'm not listening to that because I support all and so when I was listening to this and I was learning that I just, I just had a problem. I just didn't understand what was happening. It was really hard. It was really hard to think, oh, what, is, okay, what else did I get wrong? First of all, what else did I get wrong? Second of all, but I still, like some aspects of this, how do I work through that both things can be true, that it gets some things wrong, it gets some things right. And I still want the end goal, I think, do we even agree on the end goal? It was just, it was disorienting was fundamentally disorienting to my sort of the way I oriented myself around this issue and even within my own party. Um, but it was also great. I learned a lot and I rethought it. And I think that there's nothing can be lost when you better understand the world you actually live in instead of what you thought you did. And so it was really, it was really positive. I think. I'm nervous to bring up tax policy at 30 on Friday. But I will say trickle-down economics is something that I've really changed my team on. Um, I would, I could like very vociferously spout the Republican orthodoxy on trickle-down economics for you. And really doing the research and seeing there's like just no data that supports that as a way to spur our economy has been illuminating for me. And similar to Sarah, and I'll keep this short because it is pretty dry and we're getting to our time together, but um, I still I still believe in American business. I still believe in America being competitive in the world and attracting companies to be here. I believe in creating opportunity. I, I still believe in creating opportunity through tax policy. But it is very clear to me that my previous views on how lightening the tax burden at the top of the tax bracket does not inert to the benefit of the entire country. And I need to stop pretending that it does just because Ronald Reagan says so. <laughs> Thank you all so much. It's been really wonderful. You can find the entire Ripon College discussion online on YouTube if you'd like to watch the video. And thank you so much for joining us for another episode. We'll be back with you on Tuesday. We're going to talk on Tuesday with Dr. Dana Fisher about the March for Our Lives from a statistical perspective. We promise that it will be insightful and interesting. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash pantsuitpolitics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics or Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. 
Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.